Hello and welcome to the Positive Choices Podcast, where we give you brain-based strategies to help children make positive choices, solve social problems, regulate strong feelings, and thrive. I'm Lindsay Keeley, a social and emotional learning specialist and your host. Have you ever been with someone who's having a hard time? Maybe they're suffering in different ways or they're just going through a challenging season and you're there, you're being present, you're practicing that compassion And then all of a sudden, you start to take it on. You have a pit in your stomach. You start to feel nervous and your hands get sweaty. That might be the slippery slope of empathy. In this episode, we'll talk about the amazing benefits that empathy has when it's cognitive and adaptive, and the other side of empathy that might make you a little less effective, and it might not be strengthening your relationships like you'd like it to. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And you all live super busy lives. So it's really special to me when I look on my podcast dashboard and I see how many downloads we're getting and that you're taking time out of your busy days to listen. It's just super meaningful. So I wanted to thank you. And I also wanted to let you know that I am way ahead of the game. Normally, I record my episodes on Sunday or Monday. I know super close to when they air on Tuesdays. I just kind of like to let that, um, you know, that inspiration flow right up until the end. Some people might call it procrastination. I choose to, I choose to call it inspiration, (laughs) inspiration on a tight deadline. Anyway, I'm recording this on a Thursday, which is a lot faster than I typically do, but that's because I just got off the phone with my brother. We were talking about this last week's episode, all about compassion, both compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. And I was reflecting on how being compassionate to others is sitting with them. And again, being with someone in their suffering, acknowledging where they're coming from, encouraging them to be kind to themselves, reflecting on and reminding them the common humanity that that we share. This is, it's normal to feel these types of things, holding space for it. And then the last part that was part of the episode was to be a listener and to not rush in to fix it. I just had this moment, this realization of the importance of pausing, again, being with that person, acknowledging what they're going through, and then asking, what does support look like? How can I support you in this moment? Is it being a listener? I am more than happy to listen to what you're going through. This is really meaningful to me that you're sharing with me. Um, Can I continue to be a listener? Or is there something that I can do to be a support in what you're going through right now? And I think that is something, that's my goal. (laughs) That's what I'm gonna work on. I'm gonna work on being compassionate and then also asking what does support look like right now? And so that's something that I wanna start with for this episode because we're talking about empathy. And there's a couple kinds of empathy that I was not aware of. And this is so important. I'm so excited to give you this information. I wish I had personally known this like 10 years ago, but hey, you know, the sooner we learn things and once we we get it, then we can move on from there. But we're talking about empathy and this information comes from Atlas of the Heart, which is a book by Brene Brown. And In this book, she goes over, I believe it's 87 emotions and experiences that that we can have in our human experience, and one of which is empathy. And she talks about that most researchers agree that there are at least two elements to empathy. We have cognitive empathy and affective empathy. And in her book, she writes, 
Cognitive empathy, sometimes called perspective taking or uh, mentalizing, is the ability to recognize and understand another person's emotions. Affective empathy, often called experience sharing, is one's own emotional attunement with another person's experience. And so I did not know up until maybe a year or two ago that empathy had these two aspects. We have that cognitive where you're perspective taking, you're you know, thinking about it, and then that more emotional piece, that emotional empathy where you're feeling what the other person's feeling. And this made so much sense to me because when I do coaching, when I go into different schools and I'm helping teachers and I'm with them and they're telling me, I have these kids who scream and they run out of the room and they're slamming lockers and I am able to sit with a teacher who I've met maybe five minutes, five minutes before they're telling me what's going on. And I'm able to look them in the eyes and be present and say, I am here with you. That is so hard. I can connect. Hey, when I had, I call it the year of the sheep. This is the year when I had a student who literally hopped onto a sheep at a pumpkin patch petting zoo, and they were just riding along. And that was kind of a summary for what my life was like. We had a lot of a lot of students who had impulse regulation skills that were in the making. So that was a, a tough year. So I'm able to think back and call upon those memories and cognitively think about what that was like for me. And then I'm able to say, hey, I'm here with you. How can I help? What does that look like? What's our next step? And that's something that comes so naturally to me. So I was thinking, yeah, cognitive empathy, check, got that one. Now, the affective empathy is that feeling something along with the person who's struggling. So if someone is feeling really sad, you are feeling sad with them, right along with them. And the other one, cognitive empathy, that's when someone's feeling sad, you are understanding that, you're reflecting that to them, you're being a good listener. Um, But here's the thing, empathy doesn't require us to feel what the other person's feeling too. That's not a prerequisite. If someone is feeling frustrated, their boss was not kind to them that day, or maybe it's your child and your child is so mad because they were not invited to the birthday party that everyone got invitations to, empathy doesn't require us to feel that anger with them or for them. It simply doesn't. And up until recently, I thought that empathy was feeling someone else's feelings right along with them. However, when we lean into cognitive empathy more, it doesn't require us to feel that feeling, only to reach back into our own experience of whatever that emotion is so we can understand what they're going through and then effectively connect with them. And I realize when I'm working with teachers who are having challenging years, I'm able to reach back into my memory bank and and remember what that was like. But in that moment, I think what's allowed me to be effective, and when I say effective, I'm I'm mainly thinking what's allowed me to have this longevity in my ability to continue to coach teachers is that I cognitively remember, and I use that as a means to help understand and connect with the teacher who I'm sitting down with. But here's the thing. For me personally, when it's someone who I love, and they're close to me, and They are in the other room throwing up. I'm thinking of the last time Thomas was sick. I personally have this affective empathy, this I am feeling it on a personal, visceral level where I am feeling I'm hurting with them. And 
something that I've realized, this is my latest aha moment, is that in order to be effective, I don't need to feel something with someone, but I can reach back into my memory and my experience of that emotion and use that to be able to connect with them. And this is something that Brene Brown says. She says, affective empathy, feeling something along with the person who is struggling is a slippery slope toward becoming overwhelmed and not being able to offer meaningful support. And so I want to make sure I clarify that affective empathy isn't bad by any means. I think that affective empathy can be some of the most powerful connecting moments. You know, I remember um, when something really hard happened and my mom and I sitting on the couch together and just crying and being together and one of us grabbing a box of tissues and now we're passing it back and forth and we're feeling together. And I think that's beautiful. And I also think from what I've read in the research, I was looking more closely into self-compassion and um, alongside with that is compassion fatigue. And so I think what we have to be aware of is when that affective empathy, when it starts to overwhelm you, when you feel like you're being overwhelmed by that emotion and you're no longer able to um, provide that meaningful support for another person, that's when it's like a little a little red flag or a little um, light comes up on the dashboard of, oh, okay, I'm going to pause, get curious about what's going on, and maybe pivot, maybe come up with a different game plan, maybe um, kind of go back, downshift back into cognitive empathy and realize I'm going to breathe, <sighs> notice, oh, yeah. I'm starting to feel that emotional empathy. I'm taking on this other person's feelings. I'm feeling with them. Pause. Is this helping me in this moment? Am I feeling overwhelmed by this person's feelings? And if so, how can I go back and go back into my memory bank, find an experience in which I felt lonely, remember an experience when I was sad, call upon that to connect, but do that in place of taking on that person's feelings. Because sometimes in doing so, again, you're not making yourself available or helpful for them because you're so caught up in the feeling with them. So to put this into action, to put this into practice, I want to talk about three things that I think are good go-tos in terms of deciding, am I utilizing the type of empathy that's going to be the most helpful, the most productive, and ultimately What's going to have the best health benefits for me where I'm not overwhelmed? And how can I show up in a way that's meaningful for the person I'm with who's suffering and I'm not taking on their emotions to the point where I'm no longer effective or I'm overwhelmed? So number one would just be to be really mindful of your emotional state and your um, emotional regulation. So I have this glitter brain frame that I use and basically it's I mean, if you know what this is, or if you've heard me mention it before, this is going to be major review, but it's a picture frame with the, with liquid and glitter. And there's a picture of a brain. And when you shake it up, you have all the glitter that's being mixed around. So when your brain feels mixed up, when you're, when your brain's upset, being mindful of that, pausing and saying, okay, I think I might need to shift into cognitive empathy. Just keep an eye out for it. Realize, oh, I'm, I'm too much into the affective empathy. I need to pull back. Uh, I'm still here with them, but I'm going to remember an emotion that I had that I'm a little removed from. 
right? So if you're a little bit removed from a memory, you can call upon that, but you're not in the middle of it. So kind of just keep an eye out for um, if you're falling too, if you're feeling with someone too deeply to the point where it's not making you effective anymore. And secondly, being aware of the empathy that you might be having after the fact. So let's say you're with someone, they are having a difficult time, you're able to use that cognitive empathy check, you did great, you're able to be present for them, and then you also were able to be emotionally safe and calm yourself. But then here's something that can happen, and this is a characteristic of compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is the feeling of being helpless, hopeless, or powerless, feeling irritable, angry, sad, or numb. It's also associated with the sense of being detached or having decreased pleasure in activities. And here's the part that I want to highlight ruminating about the suffering of others and even feeling angry towards the event or the people that caused the suffering. So the part that I want to highlight is ruminating about the suffering of others. And I think that sometimes when we go on a walk with a friend or we're sitting with a family member and they're going through a hard time, we can in the moment be strong and and do the cognitive empathy. But then what happens when you get in your car and you're driving home? Or what happens when you wake up at the two in, two in the morning and you're just, you're, this is a good thing, you know? Like, I want you to give yourself self-compassion and also myself, I'm giving myself compassion. Um, it's a good thing that you care. You have this deep capacity for connection and love for another person. And this just means that if you find yourself ruminating and ruminating again is reverse, it's like worrying in reverse where you're thinking about something that happened in the past and you're worrying about it. If you fight, start to find yourself ruminating about someone else's suffering, pausing and asking yourself, is this helping the other person? Does this help my mom for me to be ruminating about the situations or the difficulty that she's experiencing in her life? And the answer is always no, right? And again, if when I'm going through something, I wouldn't want my mom or my brother, husband or dad, I wouldn't want them to be driving to work or out and about and then ruminating and just feeling awful about what I'm going through because that wouldn't be helpful for them and it's not helping me, you know, with what I'm going through. And so just realizing, pausing and saying, oh, I'm noticing that I'm ruminating, I'm going to breathe, and what's the function of this emotion? Susan David, who's an excellent emotions researcher, she says, what the funk, Um, and that stands for what's the function of this behavior, or this emotion rather, what is this emotion telling me? So if I find myself ruminating or worrying, oh, I'm ruminating, I'm thinking back on someone's suffering and what they're going through, this is telling me that I deeply care for this person. And it's a reminder of, okay, I am going to acknowledge, yes, that's difficult. Yes, I love this person. And I'm also going to release that, right? Because it doesn't help me and it doesn't help the other person. And I want to share something for me personally. It's in this releasing of, I'm not going to hold on to that pain. But for me personally, because faith is important to me, when I am grappling with the suffering of others, the way that I release that is I pray and I say a prayer to God and I just say, you know, God, I love my mom, my husband, whoever it is I'm praying for. And I know that you care for them as well. And I just ask that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that you would give me discernment and guidance as to how I can support them. And ultimately that I would have peace so that I can be effective and supportive in this relationship. 
There's something called loving detachment that comes up in the psychological research. And I want to share a quote from Sharon Martin, who is a licensed psychotherapist who specializes in helping individuals who are struggling with perfectionism, codependency, and people pleasing. And something that she says in regard to loving detachment is detaching gives us the emotional space we need. So we're not as reactive and anxious. It helps us be less controlling and accept things as they are rather than trying to force them to be as we want. And an important thing to note is that detaching doesn't mean abandoning or that we stop caring. In fact, we have to detach because we care so much and we have this feeling that we want to be needed, we want to support, but sometimes when we care too much and we have this really strong need to be needed, it might hurt us to stay so closely entwined in someone else's life and problems. Some advice she gives about ways to detach with love is to not give unsolicited advice, to set healthy and clear boundaries, recognize that your own feelings and needs are valid, expressing your own opinions and feelings, not taking a full responsibility for fixing or solving other people's problems, and ultimately not catastrophizing or anticipating the worst outcome for someone. And rather, stay focused on what you can control rather than worrying or thinking about what others are doing. So just having that, so those are some tips that she recommends for loving detachment. But going back to our tips for this episode, number one was to recognize your own emotional state and determine if shifting to cognitive empathy would be more helpful when you're with someone and practicing compassion. Number two was to be mindful of how someone's suffering is affecting you after the fact. If you're ruminating about what someone else is going through long after you've been spending time with them, how can you release that, whether it's by prayer, by being really mindful about having loving detachment, just keeping an eye on that and finding a more adaptive strategy. And finally, my last tip that I'm practicing for myself is coming up with some kind of visual to help you when you have this rumination, when you have the worries or the anxieties about someone else's pain. And I think having a visual is really helpful. So when I was teaching and I had an excellent mentor my second year, the year of the sheep, um, I had so much sorrow and so much sadness as I reflected and thought about my students. And I knew that there were students in my class who were experiencing trauma, who would go home to traumatic home situations. And I always told Thomas, I think we should buy like a huge van and then I can just take care of these kids on the weekend so they don't have to experience the um, average child experiences that some of them were facing. But what my mentor said, he said, Lindsay, when you go home, I want you to find something. He said, do you have a mailbox? Like, is it, you know, a mailbox right in front of your house? Or is it like one of those mailbox units? I said, uh, it's like a unit with the different mailboxes in it for the street. And he said, okay, when you drive up to that, I want you to stop your car. And I was totally confused. Like, where are you going with this? He said, I want you to visualize you taking your worries, your cares, all of your thoughts about these students that you love so dearly. And I want you to visualize yourself putting those cares into the mailbox. And then tomorrow, when you get up and you get ready to go to work and you're driving to work, then you can go, you drive past that mailbox, you can take it out, and then you can think about it and be strategic about 
your thoughts around it and how you can move forward and be productive. But that was just a visual that he gave me that I thought was so awesome. So to have a worry mailbox, um, you could also have like a worry time for younger kids. This is so helpful for kids who deal with anxiety or OCD or who are struggling with their thoughts, being able to say, let's have worry time every day at 8 15 PM. We can talk about your worries or get out your worry box. And we're going to have 10 minutes for your brain to really think about those things that are worries. That way it's not happening throughout your day where it's, you're constantly telling yourself, nope, (laughs) cognitive empathy and don't ruminate and all these things, right? Sometimes it's easier just to say, okay, brain, I hear you. I hear that you want to think and process these things. Let's do it when we drive home and we go past the mailbox or when we're coming back towards the mailbox, or at 8.15 p.m., I'm going to think about this. Um, And so I think that's so helpful to have some kind of visual, some kind of time frame where you can be strategic and mindful of whatever your worries or thoughts are. You're not just saying, I shouldn't have worries, I'm not going to do it, right? But you can also, if that's not effective, you can hold space for them and say, I'm going to be strategic and intentional about the amount of time that I think about this and when I think about it. Thomas and I have the nine o'clock rule. And when we do this, it is amazing. And when we forget, we always say, oh yeah, nine o'clock rule. So for us, the nine o'clock rule is at 9 p.m., all of our difficult conversations, the emotional ones, the conversations that require a lot of cognitive capacity, right? The the conversations where um, we might get really emotional or emotionally charged about different things. We just say, oh, it's nine o'clock. We'll circle back to that tomorrow because as our brains get ready to go to bed, the amount of fuel that our brain has, it's the tank is lower. And that's when we go to bed and we sleep and we have this restful healing. And in the morning, our brains are better equipped to be able to problem solve and our prefrontal cortex is operating maybe with more um, more power, <laughs> more intentionality because we've had our sleep. And so being mindful of maybe there's a certain time at night where you want to say, oh, it's nine o'clock, we're going to circle back tomorrow and try to problem solve that situation then. You can use all of these strategies with kids just as you're practicing them personally. If you have a child who is highly sensitive, I know growing up, as you can only imagine, I was a highly sensitive child and some things that I know were helpful for me and that would be helpful for other children and students would be basically these tips. Number one, when a child seems to be really worried about maybe a classmate, maybe you have a family member that's sick, being able to say to your child, I can tell you're really upset. You're really sad that grandma's sick. That makes sense that you're sad. I feel sad too about that. What can we do right now to help ourselves feel better and maybe even help grandma feel better? Let's, can we make her a card? Maybe we can draw a picture for her. We can write her a letter. Maybe we can bake some muffins or cupcakes and go bring those to her. Um, if faith is important to you, maybe you could say a prayer for her and doing something like that to support. And you can say something to the effect of feeling sad is normal and it's good for you to be aware of the fact that your brain feels sad about this. And now we're going to focus on something else because it's helpful for our brains to focus on what else, whatever else is happening in our lives. And we can make a healthy choice. We can go for a walk and we can have a healthy snack and watch a funny YouTube video. And how about let's talk about grandma tomorrow 
right? When on your way home from school, off after school, or let's let's continue to talk about this. Choose some kind of time frame where you're not saying it's okay to be sad, but we're not going to think about this. Maybe put some some parameters, some time frames around that. And I think that might be a really helpful way, but always telling yourself and to tell children that is so beautiful that you care so deeply, that you love so much and that you want the best for someone else. Wow, that is awesome. Let's find some ways to help your brain continue to care for that person, but do it in a way where you can be healthy as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Positive Choices Podcast. And next week, we are going to be talking about how our assumptions of others' intent influences our capacity for compassion and connection. And this is something that we were going to talk about this week. However, because I had that key learning about empathy and how maybe I was leaning more towards affective empathy and just some really personal key learnings. I just had to jump on that opportunity to talk about it. But next week, I am excited to jump back into that question of, are people doing the best that they can? Again, thank you for listening and I will talk with you soon.